the Bible, please, that last passage, we're particularly looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. We usually say, well, I usually heard it said, and I think it would be applicable tonight, that uh, be handy if you to have, it's always handy for you to have the Bible open. But particularly, the, we need to trace some things through, perhaps, uh, around this passage. With our Bibles open, let's just have a prayer. Our eternal God and Father, we honour and bless and praise your most holy name and earnestly seek your aid this evening that we might have the wisdom to understand and the courage to follow the teachings of your word. Guide our thoughts, we pray, in the next few moments. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I pondered whether to do this, but if you'll, with your uh, permission, I will do it. If you've ever been in, in, been in a country for a while and don't hear your language and you don't understand English too well, it's, it's a bit difficult. And on your behalf, I'd like to welcome um, a couple of Brazilians who are friends who are visiting us this evening. Os dizer que há entre nós amigos brasileiros e queremos como uma igreja expressar os nossos bem-vindos e a nossa oração é que receba de Deus a sua rica bênção e que o coração seja cheio de, de alegria hoje à noite. You can say amen. Amen. That's all right. I, I've stumbled across uh, a quote from that prolific author, Anon. <laughs> or to give him, him or her their full name, Anonymous. And, and Anonymous says, and listen to this, nothing is discussed more and practice less than prayer. Ouch. That, that's painful, isn't it? It's painful particularly because with the passage before us, prayer has to be our subject. And we don't let it just be a topic for discussion, dare we? It has to enter our bloodstream and become a vital part of our living. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, when speaking of prayer, he says, God has no dumb children. A prayerless Christian would be a strange creature, wouldn't he? Be like a kangaroo without a hop, giraffe without a neck, lion without a roar, baby without a cry. It, it just isn't so. The hymn writer, he says, prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air. To be a Christian is to pray, surely. Just a thought, after Paul, to whom are we most indebted for the writing of the New Testament? John, maybe? Peter? Well, no, it's Luke. In his Gospel, and in the later book he writes, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, he authors... 52 chapters of our New Testament. 
And prayer is emphasized throughout. I was just flipping through, again, the first few pages of Acts. Uh, prayer is all the way there, along there. From Acts we learn that the New Testament church was born in a prayer meeting. And, and look at the book we're studying this evening, Luke's Gospel. In chapter 3, we learn that Jesus prayed at his baptism. It's Luke that brings this out. And he says, and as, and as he was praying, heaven was opened. In chapter 5, verse 16, we read, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In chapter 6, Jesus spends the whole night on a mountainside praying to God. And this is before he chooses his 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. In chapter 9 and verse 19, we find him praying in private. And in chapter 9, further on, it's Luke alone who tells us that Jesus climbed the Mount of Transfiguration to pray, specifically to pray. And this is how he records it. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of, of lightning. As he prayed, you see. In chapter 11, we find him praying again and the disciples come with the request, Lord, teach us to pray. And there follows that precious teaching. He reintroduces us to the Lord's Prayer and there's another parable on praying there. As we're going to discover, chapter 18 has two parables about praying. In chapter 22, just a little further on, in chapter 22, I, I find these are, I, these are personal speci special ones to me, but um, you find two verses which Luke adds to that betrayal of, or the forthcoming betrayal of, um, of Peter. And this is what he says, Luke 22 and verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. How did Peter bounce back from that horrifying gaff of betraying the Lord right before the crucifixion? The shame of it. The embarrassment of it. Because Jesus prayed. How long have you been a Christian? Have you stood? Have you stood? You do realize you've got a prayer partner in heaven, don't you? The one who ever lives to make intercession for us. Later on in, in chapter 22 there, it's Luke alone who tells us that at Gethsemane, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's Luke that tells us that. In fact, in Luke's account, and in Luke's account only, Jesus ends his life in prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? Luke shows us that the one who least needs to pray is the one who prays the most. Doesn't that teach us something, do you think? Shouldn't that show us something? And so, so to our chapter, chapter 18. You'd wonder where we got there. Where were we there? Chapter 18. Uh, we're going to, um, there are two parables on prayer. We're particularly going to take the, the first one from chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. So just three points. Persevering in prayer, perusing the parable, and pressing the point. 
You got that? Persevering in prayer, perusing the parable, pressing the point. My mother always told me to watch my P's and Q's. I was never one for Q's. I suppose it was something about being raised in wartime Britain with ration books and interminable Q's, sandbags and and, uh, shrapnel in the gutter to put in your pockets and wear a hole. Interminable Q's. So Q's aren't my favourite thing. So we'll stay with the P's and the first one is persevering in prayer. That's verse 1. We give them the reason for the parable. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. We're immediately told what the lesson is. We're to always pray and not give up. We're all aware, I suppose, aren't we, of the promise to pray for someone that wilts away like a a limp New Year's resolution. We know we should pray because after all, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, then why do we find it so difficult? Why is prayer so difficult? Especially when we face the apostolic instruction. Remember how the two little words that you have in English anyway, the two little words that you have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 from Paul, pray continually, pray continually. But you see, it's not only apostolic teaching. Paul practices what he preaches. He's able to write to a church he's yet to visit, God is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. He informs his young protege, Timothy. He says, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Out of his uh, life experience and his heartfelt conviction, he exhorts the Christian, uh, Christians in uh, Ephesus, the Ephesian Christians. This is what he says, Ephesians chapter chapter 6 and verse 18 and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints always keep on praying on all occasions always keep on praying isn't this the lesson Jesus is teaching chapter 18 verse 1 there it is who says the Christian life isn't a challenge that prayer has to have that integral part of our living, the Christian life. And so, to our second point, not just persevering in prayer, but perusing the parable. That's verses 2 to 5. Chapter 18, verse 2, He, Jesus, said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men, And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Here's a heartless, godless, egoistical man just concerned with his own comfort and his own well-being. It's hard to imagine anyone less qualified to be a judge, isn't it? Here he is, holding a position of privilege and authority, 
powerful but totally uncaring. And in contrast, the widow is one of the most vulnerable members of society, completely unprotected. And obviously, some rogue is seeking to take advantage of her defenselessness and, and rip her off. But the judge just refuses to consider the case. There's, there's no advantage in it for him. He's just not interested. But verse 3 tells us she doesn't give up, does she? She keeps coming. She keeps coming with a petition. Give me justice. Give me justice. Grant me justice. And in the end, although he's not the least bit concerned with the woman or her circumstances, he accedes to her constant pleading. Not because he wants to deliver justice, but just so he can have some peace and quiet. That's verses 4 and 5, isn't it? For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And then the Lord delivers the punchline. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Will he keep putting them off? If the worst specimen of a judge you can possibly imagine heeds a widow's persistent pleading, won't the God of all grace and mercy more readily respond to the cries of his children. Will he keep putting them off? Verse 7. Well, the answer has to be no, doesn't it? No. Our God is no uncaring judge. He is the loving Heavenly Father, surely. Perusing the parable. Now pressing the point. Because we can struggle here, can't we? If he will respond and won't keep putting them off, as we're told in verse 7, why do some of our constant prayers never seem to be answered? There's, there's no easy reply there, is there? The, the response to Paul's earnest thrice-repeated prayer in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 might, might help us. You know... Lord, this thorn in the flesh, this illness, whatever it is, Lord, Lord, it's impeding my ministry, Lord. Lord, Lord, take it away. He's a man who knows how to pray, and he's praying. And uh, the Lord said no, didn't he? In so many words, no. No, Paul, my, my grace is sufficient for you. You're going to discover all over again, Paul, that, that my power is demonstrated, is perfected through your weakness. And so it goes on and says, oh, well, I'll glory him. Well, maybe that will help a little bit. But ultimately, aren't we left with the Lord's own prayer in Gethsemane? As he faces the dark horror of the cross, my Father, if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, this is the Son of God, yet not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, Lord, but yours. What we do know 
And it's there in verse 1, and it's what the following parable tells us. We should always pray and not give up. I wonder, that missionary you said you'd pray for, have you persevered in your prayer for him or for her? You know, not just the same repetitive prayer. You can easily get that, can't it? You know, bless Joe, Lord, bless Joe. But imaginative prayers. Prayers for gospel obedience in their personal life and ministry. You know, gleaning information about their situation from their newsletters. I'll, I'll never forget, never forget the uh, humbling encouragement received when after five and a half years in Brazil, in the north of Brazil, we returned to Britain for our first furlough. That was in 1964. We were taking meetings in Worthing. Long way from Sheffield, Worthing. Pebbles and seaweed. We were there. And I was invited to show our slides to three... It was slide time then. Invited to show our slides to, to three elderly ladies who lived together in the house to maintain a prayer ministry. One of the ladies wasn't able to be there, so the congregation was two. Uh, one, uh, I was projecting the, the slides simply for these two people. One was a widow who was nearly blind, and the other was her single lady companion. So when showing an, an Amazon jungle scene, I guess the widowed lady could just about glimpse a vague green blur. I've long forget, forgotten her name. But I suppose I'll remember her companion's Christian name to, the, to my dying day. The blind lady kept interrupting the, the commentary. All the way through she kept interrupting. With a shrill voice she was saying, Make a note of that, Mildred! Make a note of that! Bless her heart. You know why they were making notes, don't you? So that they could pray for us. I've often wondered how much Mildred and her two friends are responsible for any subsequent blessings received. How much we owe to their faithfulness in prayer and the faithfulness of our God, of course, in answering. And yet, and yet, I'm not convinced that this is the main lesson the passage is teaching. Have a look at verses 7 and 8 again. And will God not bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Justice, you see, justice, justice, justice. Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's clearly making reference to justice delivered when the Lord returns at the end of time. You know the old adage, a text without a context is a pretext. So we need to look at that. You, you do know, don't you, that the, when Luke wrote his gospel, he didn't write it in chapters and verses. We're ever so glad that whoever did that centuries later did it. Otherwise, we'd never find John 3.16. But it wasn't written that way. The whole, it's a whole document with no interruptions. In fact, there was, in the original, 
There was no punctuation too, but it was, it's, it's just one massive document. And, and when you look at the very first verse of our, of our parable, chapter 18, verse 1, the very first word, then Jesus, actually the word is and, more literally, and Jesus. What's and? It's a conjunction. It's a joining word. What's it, what's it joining us to? The previous context. So have a little look at the previous context. I'm just turning over a page backwards and I'm looking at Luke, Luke 17. This is why I wanted you to see the Bible. Luke 17 and verse 22. You see, Jesus is in the parable. He's speaking to his disciples. He's turning to whom now? To his disciples. Verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you'll not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Don't go running off after them. Some will say he's already come. They still say that. Jesus returned at the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Or some will say, well, well Jesus re- returned years ago, but he didn't quite come to earth. He, he came to the heavenlies. Don't go running off after them. Don't follow them. Don't follow them. Because when it happens, it'll be absolutely plain. Verse 20, 24. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. You won't miss it. You won't miss it. But of course, first of all, the reason for his, his first coming is that he might seek and save that which was lost. It's going to mean the cross. So he says in verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Lord, how's the world going to be before you come? Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. How will it be, Lot? Will it be like that? People will be buying and selling, marrying, divorcing, just normal life, without a thought, and then it will happen. Verse 30. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. So on that day, you don't don't bother about earthly things or your possessions. Verse 31, on that day, no one who's on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. She was overwhelmed by the disaster. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Anybody trying to hang on to this earthly life or the things of this earth will, will lose it. And whoever loses his life who denies himself to follow the Christ, who hides his life in Christ, whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that day, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Husband and wife. Wife and a husband. One taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Two mothers standing at the school gates. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord? Where's this going to happen? Where, Lord? They asked. And, and this appears, doesn't it? It appears to be a, one of these proverbs from the time of Jesus, I would think. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. But you get the picture, don't you? There are the vultures spiraling around, riding the thermals, 
looking down with their scraggy necks and beady eyes. And there in the herd, one tumbles over, twitches. Is that it? Sure is. And one spirals down and soon the, the whole crowd are down. You'll see them. You'll see them going for it, crackling and fighting. When it happens, it's plain. Everybody will see it, says Jesus. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable. And Jesus told his disciples a parable. In view of that that's going to happen, what should we be doing, Lord? Pray. Pray. I wonder, do you get the thrust? Look in the the application in verse 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Will he keep putting them off? Won't the just judge, the just judge, God himself, won't he attend to the cry of his chosen ones, his, his elect people, when they constantly cry to him? Look at the scriptural, or I'll read it for you if you like, but you can find it if you want, the scriptural um, picture book. That's Revelation, full of symbols and pictures. Listen to this one. This is Revelation chapter 8, verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. It's the prayers of all the saints being offered. The prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. What are the prayers? What are the prayers, the constant cries of God's people over the centuries that bring judgments, that bring justice on the earth? What are we taught to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A constant prayer for ultimate justice that will be answered. Will be answered. See the fulfilment of the promise. That's why I ask that that particular reference or that particular passage be read. Second, Second Thessalonians Chapter 1, let me just read two verses. Verse 6. God is just. He's not the unjust judge. No, that's the way he goes. But God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you, all, and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When will this happen, Lord? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Do you see? Do you see verses 7 and 8? The heart cry of so many will be answered. How does God allow that? Why doesn't he do something? It just isn't fair. But you see, God has done something, hasn't he? He's, he's sent his son to be our saviour. He's... he's intruded into human history. He's brought his son to die on the cross. He has done something and he will do something again. 
he'll send his son to be our judge. And the lesson is this, surely, history has a focus. Justice will be done and will be seen to be done. We live in a moral universe where we are accountable to, a, to the holy God who created us. What does the Bible teach us? Man is destined to die once. No reincarnation in Scripture. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Hebrews 9 and 27. Everything will be out in the open. Everything. Sordid backstreet crimes. High-level political corruption. Major war atrocities. No Hitlers will escape by suicide in underground bunkers. Nor will the Mugabes of this world get away with their megalomaniac havoc that they've unleashed upon their countries. But here's the crunch. Here's the crunch. Without a saviour, neither will I escape. Neither will I escape with my personal catalogue of shame and failure before God's holy law. And neither will you. All of us will be judged. We live in an unjust, fallen world, but ultimately, justice is, a, is at the heart of God's universe. You see that again. That uh, back there in, in Luke chapter 18, verse 7 and 8. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, and he will see that they get justice and quickly. How quickly, Lord? Well, he told us, didn't he, in the previous chapter there, it, that's where it is. As quick as a flash of lightning. Suddenly, unexpectedly, like in Noah's day, like at Sodom's destruction. But that's not all it says, is it? That's not all it says, is it? Look at the end of verse 8. However, however, this sobering question, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? There's no sign of end-time revival here, is there? No sign of all people being swept into the kingdom. Rather, isn't it a re-echo of the Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember about the broad and the narrow roads? Do you remember? He says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the question hangs awkwardly in the air, doesn't it? Just for me, hangs awkwardly in the air. At the very least, it seems to, to suggest that faith in Christ isn't prevalent amongst earth's billions. That even with all the preaching and advance of the gospel, sadly, it's largely an unprepared and unbelieving world when he returns. Be like the time of Noah. Like Sodom. But we can't leave it there, can we? I must apply it personally, and, and so must you. Surely you must. If I'm alive at his coming, or whether I'm ushered into his presence at death, the question is, will he find faith in my heart? Will he find faith in your heart? 
that, that personal faith, that repentant faith, that, that saving faith in the Saviour who went to the cross for us, bearing the, the hell-deserving penalty of my sin and of your sin. Will you find faith? We need to encroach just a little on the Lord's second parable in our chapter just for two things. Not to mirror the self-congratulatory, self-promoting prayer of the self-righteous Pharisee. You've got that in, chapter, in verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. It's a spiritual CV, isn't it? Lord, this is who I am. No question of sin here, is there? No question of sin. Of course, we wouldn't be <laughs> we wouldn't be as crude as to say that, would we? But we might not pray it, but it's there. I go to church. I take communion. Uh, I live a good life. And I'm not like that, that woman who lives at the bottom of the street. We all know how she lives, don't we? And no question of my sin. Of how I've failed before a holy God. But we're not to follow the example. That's why the, par- they, that's why the parable was told. But it's verse 13, isn't it? The tax collector, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now that's the prayer. That's the prayer. And because we know of the Saviour who went to the cross for us, we can intensify our cry to God. God, for the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus who died for me on that cross, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me for Jesus' sake. When the Son of Man comes, or when he calls us into his presence through death, will he find faith in our heart, faith in the Lord Jesus? Now only you can answer that. Only you can answer that. That's between you and God. Just end with a little anecdote. It'll be a few days ago that we had a crisis in our house. There was a spider in the bath. You know the picture, don't you? They, they sort of get in. They don't know what they're going after, but they get in. And uh, they can't get out. Too steep. So, the poor so this shows the tenderness of my heart. I thought that little thing needs to come out of there. Uh, nothing to do about lack of masculine courage. I didn't just pick it up. That was simply because I didn't want to crush it, of course. So I got the towel and dangled it over the side of the bath. A silly little thing. Here he is, the rescuer, saving him from the deluge to come. And with all his eight legs, he's running away. You're not doing that, are you? Tonight? You're not doing that tonight. God has come. He sent the great rescuer, the Lord Jesus. You're still running away. Honestly, are you still running away? Why is it? Because you're good enough? You're not, you know. Because you're too bad? That's why he came. Because of what family might say, my friends might say, what's God going to say? 
You say, well, how do I turn to him? Well, there's your prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me for Jesus' sake. This isn't playing about. This isn't playing about. This isn't about your mortgage. This isn't about stops and shares. This isn't about buying a new car, a new house. This is your eternal destiny we're talking about. And God has sent his rescuer. How can we turn away?